Hi, and welcome to the After Animals podcast. After Animals uncovers trends and stories at the cutting edge of the global post-animal movement. What does a future look like in which food, fashion, and entertainment no longer have to exploit animals to be successful? Each episode, we will share with you a remarkable and inspiring story about someone who is forging a more compassionate future for us all. After Animals is co-produced and hosted by me, Ilara Nakagawa, and me, Sharanya Krishnaprasad. For this episode, I spoke with Thomas Jonas, the CEO and co-founder of Sustainable Bioproducts, a food tech company that has developed a breakthrough protein technology from research they conducted for NASA in Yellowstone National Park. Thomas shifted gears from a career in the consumer packaged goods, or CPG, industry to building a company that aims to make a difference for the planet while disrupting our current food system. Thomas, thank you so much for being on the show. Before we talk about your company and the work you're doing, can you please walk us through how you got to where you are today? Hi, Sharonia. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast today. It's exciting to be here and to talk to, to your listeners. I sometimes myself really wonder how the hell did I get there. A chain of events put me in where, where I am today and led to me co-founding and, and leading the company. So let me give you a little bit of my, of my background. In case there were any doubts for your listener, let me be clear, I am French. So this is a French accent. So I came to the U.S. about about 16 years ago, and I was sent as an expat for a large French multinational company, and we were doing packaging. So I was doing beauty packaging at the time. Um, I was then hired by an American company, and I was in charge of several multinational packaging businesses. And it was a great experience, very interesting work, working with some of the biggest name in in the CPG world. I walked away from it and I went to Kauai for a break. And I I had the feeling that I needed to do something else. I had enjoyed this job tremendously, but I wanted to do something that was going to be more impactful. A few weeks later, Completely randomly, I on the beach, I was there with my daughter and she was playing with her sand toy and two little boys come and start stealing her sand toy. And the father comes uh, behind saying, sorry, sorry. And he sounded like a really interesting guy. And so we, we started, the two of us, to, to partner and, and then a third partner joined us. Uh, so that was Danny and, and then you all joined us. And, and the three of us started to think about what, what could we do? And we started looking at a bunch of things in the, in the world of technology. And, and we met Mark Kozubal, who was in Montana. Mark had done this amazing research for NASA. And, and really the goal of his research was to try to figure out if NASA was to send a probe to a moon of Saturn out there or to Mars, what would be the conditions in which it would make sense to look for life? So if it's yeah. a methane lake and Titan, do you bother or not? Right. If it's you know a frozen world, if it's minus 300 Celsius, do you bother or not, right? What if it's acidic? Trying to really explore what would be the possibilities where life could be. And so how do you do that on planet Earth, right? Well, the way you do that is you go to a place that doesn't look like planet Earth. And this is really what drove the initial work of the company to the acidic, volcanic 
Springs of Yellowstone National Park. And so in, in a remote part of the park, in a place where there is between one and 100 earthquakes a day, it's actually a place where you cannot go anymore. The National Park uh, just closed this place. It's too dangerous. And what's fascinating when you get there is that it looks like a dead zone because you have this acid that's seeping from, from, from the earth. You're just above the lava chamber. And pretty much all the trees, all the plants just die. It's just this barren kind of sand. It looks like another planet with this acid springs that are snaking through. It's completely flat. It's a very otherworldly kind of environment. But the thing that is phenomenal and um, so exciting and also, you know, that really fills us with hope is that even in a situation like that, life finds a way. And we discovered a bunch of organisms that evolved in this incredibly acidic environment. And when I say incredibly acidic environment, just to be clear, it's your car battery level of pH, right? Yeah. It's what you would use to sanitize things, you know. Right. It is also one of the highest naturally occurring concentration of sulfur, chromium, arsenic. So it's, it's a crazy environment. It, it doesn't look like Earth. And that's where uh, we discovered a, a bunch of microbial life forms and one in particular that is very interesting. We, we named it MK7. And so the MK stands for Mark Kozubal. And seven is because it's the seven organisms that he discovered. And, and what's, and the nine, you know, we, we need to think about a better name, uh, but it kind of stuck. So that's what we've been using. And MK7 is interesting for a bunch of reasons. First of all, it is a complete protein. So, and when I say, you know, complete protein, it has all the essential amino acid that we need as humans to survive. It is a fungi. So it's part of this greater mushroom realm. What is fascinating with fungi is that they're closer to us than they are to plants. So people think oh. about them kind of, oh, this is just a plant because we buy mushrooms at, you know, at the grocery store with, with veggies. But in actuality, it is this other branch of life that we always forget about. They are not plants, they're not animals, but they kind of made up more like animals, but they kind of move like plants. Right. But they are everywhere around us. So everyone listening to us right now is breathing in and out bacteria, fungi, and a lot of these microorganisms that are absolutely all over us and surround us. And we don't really, we're not really aware of them. These microorganisms represent most of life on, on the planet. So MK7 is interested because it's complete protein, but also because it is a filamentous organism. And so it has these filaments naturally that kind of resemble muscle filaments. It's not exactly huh. the same, wow. but it has a texture. So this is not like a tofu kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. It, it, has, an, it has its own texture and there's a, a chewiness to it. It's completely natural, right? Yeah. So when it grows, does it look like a mushroom or is it just individual no, cells? So, in a... no, that's, <laughs> I'm trying that's, to picture what MK7 looks yeah, like. Yeah. Well, actually, let me answer your question, but I'm just going to add one thing before. Yes. Uh, another thing that's really interesting about it is because it comes from this very barren environment, it has developed phenomenal ability to use whatever is available in its barren world in a very efficient way to sustain itself. It can do that in this very extreme environment, and it completely sucks at doing that in the normal, regular world. 
so it's really interesting. It's really a, an example of evolutionary adaptation. So it's not, don't worry, it's not going to come and conquer our world. It can only live in its world, but it's a very good competitor in its world. So very efficient at using resources. And it is phenomenal to see that nature has this solution. And nature is the most formidable biotech engineer. Yeah. Right. So we 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 just leveraging nature's own technology. It's really what we're doing. So it took us a few years to building up understanding of this organism and, and of its very unique strategies. And we use that to create a novel fermentation technology. What we do is fermentation. So it's fermentation the way yeah. you would ferment a lot of things from soy sauce to beer to cheese. So it's fermentation. Yeah. We're cultivating this microbial organism, but we cultivate it in a very different and unexpected way because we leverage the fact that it's this extremophile organism. And so we create conditions that are, that are ideal for its growth, but that also yeah. are not ideal for the other organisms that would possibly come and contaminate it. Therefore, we're not concerned about that contamination. So yeah, that's, that's fascinating that something exists out there when we've been looking all over the, you know, all over the moon and on Mars for extraplanetary life. And all we had to do was just look inwards and look at what's on earth already. That's that is so correct. And, 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 you know, the funny thing is we're still working with NASA and we, yeah. you know, I, I always say that if uh, this thing doesn't work for us and, you know, if our business doesn't work on earth, at least we'll, we'll try to make the best possible food on Mars. Yes. <laughs> smaller, smaller business opportunity, but, you know, we're looking forward. That's, now, that's the next frontier. So <laughs> That's the next frontier. So, yes, I mean, I think the, the idea of frontier is actually essential to what we do because what we do is very new. And, and it is a frontier, but I think we live in a world right now in many ways that is reaching the limits of what it can be, right? We know we, right. we're reaching the... the we are reaching the frontier of what this planet can sustain with the way we are growing our food, for instance, but also a lot of other things. But yes, global warming is real. Yes, we are going on the higher end of the prediction. Essentially, what it means is we are going to have to do things differently. We, need, we are at this frontier time where we need to come up with new solutions across transportation, across energy and also across food and i think it's not lost on on a lot of people that the way we grew food currently is one of the main contributors of some of these challenges yes in terms of energy in terms of greenhouse gas emission and we're going to have to you know these numbers that everyone have heard we're going to have to create generate twice the amount of food that we have been producing today the agricultural model that we're using for our protein, the protein supply chain is basically one of the most inefficient thing yes. that you have around you. And, and this is, I think this is what we really need to understand at the heart of, of what we are doing is how do we bring efficiency to the food and especially the protein supply chain? If you think about the, the, the classic protein supply chain for one minute, we are here in Chicago you you are in i'm in the san francisco area you're in san francisco you're in san francisco yeah. if i would get on an airplane right now and if i would fly to you i would fly for an hour or two above soy and corn which are not for us you know but yeah. 90 over 90 percent of that corn and soy it's yeah. for feeding the Livestock animals feed. yep. right 
So it's about half of the usable land in the U.S. It's about half of the usable water. How do you scale that up? You know, where do you put more of that? There is no place. And that becomes even more painful of a problem if you add global warming. Yeah. And growing this feed to sustain the animal is going to be more and more of a problem. The crop that we currently use in the U.S., we will not be able to grow them by the end of the century. So all of these things are already impacting our life and are going to impact our life even more. Yeah. The, the, the way we grow our food, the specialization around a very limited amount of species, all of that is contributing to making a, this whole thing a very inefficient and fragile system that can really collapse. We, we, you know, we're diminishing bio, biodiversity in a phenomenal way with, with our food system. And it's not just because we rely on very few species, but it's also because the current agriculture system in our lifetime is depleting life. I, I remember when I was a kid growing up in France in the summertime, we would drive with my parents to, to the countryside. And when you were driving your car to the countryside, your your windshield would get in the summer would get you know caked with bugs, and that's not true anymore. And that is true for the bugs, that of course for the bees, but for all sort of bugs that we don't really pay attention to. Yeah. What's even more frightening here is that it is true for the microbes that live at, at the roots of all the plants that we eat. Yeah. And we don't even understand what's going on here. We just know that we're creating havoc in these ecosystems at microbial level. And those microbial life forms are really the bricks. They are, they are the source uh, of life. They're really helping, yeah. you know, fixate the nitrogen, enabling the plant to grow. Yeah. And we, we could really put ourselves in a situation that would be very challenging. You know, I, I'm, I don't want to sound negative, but I think we have to realize that these things are real. We don't have to be terrified. We have to think about what can we do about it. And we need to come up with bold solutions. A few days ago, we were celebrating the first man on the moon. Yeah. Um, we were actually, I, I recently, one of the Chicago newspaper put us into the moonshot. And yes, I want to be a moonshot, you know, because yeah. first of all, they were successful. They, they made it to the moon. But I think we need to have this sort of bold thinking about what this can be. And we can reinvent a food supply that can be delicious, that doesn't have to be harmful to the planet, to the animals, and to humans as well, right? It can be good for your health. Yeah. And that's possible. And actually, guess what? Nature has already made a lot of this available to us. We just have to change some of our focus. And yeah. that's what we are, we are doing. We, we develop this technology and we grow uh, this product in a tray, a very simple tray system. Huh. So imagine something that looks like your cafeteria tray and yeah. imagine that in it, you have something that looks like a slice of raw chicken. Got it. And that's, what, okay. that's what we do. That's amazing. Yulara, I was doing a lot of research on this, and it turns out that they're trying to create what will essentially become a neutral tasting, high protein substance, which could be solid, liquid, powder, or anything else. Essentially, the protein can become meat-like, it can be savory, it can be sweet, it can be dairy-like, it could be mixed into yogurt. They're producing an ingredient, you know, it could then go into any food product and make it 
a high protein product. And has so many different applications, which is wonderful and can have so many different textures and flavors and uses. Yeah. That actually is so exciting to me because I was recently reading that Omni Pork, which is the emerging ground pork product that Green Monday, I believe, is working on, but the brand is Omni Pork. They purposely made the product flavorless. Mm-hmm. So that it can be used in more applications, which is exactly what we root for is the scalability factor, yeah. the multi-use factor, and at the core of it, effective altruism. We want to make a big change. And what makes this product, I think, also unique is that it is a super protein. And so these fungi are producing a protein that has all of the nine essential amino acids, the protein building blocks that any human body needs to function. These protein building blocks, the amino acids, are typically found in animal products. And so that's why, you know, you'll see the egg industry or the dairy industry touting their products as being complete proteins. But they're harder to get from a vegan or vegetarian diet. Soy or tofu, quinoa, seaweed, spirulina, and some seeds like the hemp that you had in your salad are some of the other vegetarian vegan sources of these essential amino acids, but they're not as digestible either. And so the only way to get them to be completely absorbed by the body is to make them isolates. And so I think that's what also makes this product very unique and very exciting. And very game-changing for all of us vegans and vegetarians and flexitarians and reducitarians who are trying to get these proteins into our bodies and finding it rather tedious to have to look it up and mix and match, like you said. For the listeners, I had made myself a cauliflower fried rice earlier and I was showing Sharanya proudly that I was also topping it with hemp seeds um, so that it was more nutritionally sound. But yeah, no, that's wonderful. And as we've been talking through this and I've heard the interview as well, I was wondering like, how the heck do they actually grow it? Like it's a, so you you talk about it as a microbe. So like in my mind, I'm like thinking like scientists in lab coats growing it on like a Petri dish. Like, and what the heck is it? Like, what is a, what is a microbe? I would love to know if you know, if you've done any research into it. Yeah, great questions. Microbe is microscopic organism, and so it's not visible to the naked eye. And it can exist either as a single cell or as a colony. And what makes uh, this process that Sustainable Bioproducts has come up with unique is that it's essentially like they're brewing a whole lot of beer. They are able to have this organism in a liquid suspension to grow large quantities of the organism. And from that, they can then isolate the protein. That is so cool. I cannot wait. So question, when can we actually get our hands on this stuff? I really want to try it. Yeah, so he had said it was going to be about 12 to 18 months before it was in the market. And I guess if people really wanted to learn more, like say if a journalist is listening to this that wants to write something about this product or the company, they can always just go to their website and probably reach out to them directly through their contact page, right? Yeah, and their website is www.sustainablebioproducts.com. So anyone can find that information online. I'm so excited about this. This is just so cool for so many different reasons. Yeah, and it couldn't have come at a better time because I'm sure our listeners will be aware of the recent UN report that was warning about 
how climate change is putting so much pressure on the ability of humans to feed ourselves. And one of their proposals was to shift diets away from meat. And if we're able to give people a great alternative that can be mixed into so many other foods that still gives them a high source of protein, I think that's going to be a great alternative. Wonderful. I'm so glad that you were able to connect with them. And then in turn, we're able to share this incredible coming product with listeners. Yeah, me too. So right now, from what I understand, it's an edible protein. Mm -hmm. But are you thinking of applications beyond food? Because I know proteins exist in so many different materials. But could this potentially produce something that's beyond just an edible protein? Yes, it can. You know, one of the things that it we've been working on as well is a leather type of application and it works extremely well for this this sort of application our focus is on food to to, to be clear we think i mean we know we've made some really delicious food and across a very wide variety of of products what what we do really is cellular agriculture but the cell that we use instead of using an animal cell we use a, a microbial you know fungal cell but it's a high protein cell. And so typically, you know, food is where we think we can have the fastest, biggest impact. And that's yes. really what we're going after. But there is a whole lot of other things. As you very rightfully pointed out, there is a lot of use for protein. So there is a lot of things that we can do in the protein realm. It's amazing that you just mentioned cellular agriculture but you're also talking about microbial organisms and not animal cells. So that's the first time I think your company is the first one that I came across that was using cellular agriculture, but without animal cells. I, I think the, the, really the way, to where, the way to think about it, what we all need is protein, right? Yes. Where the protein comes from, as long as, as it is a good protein, digestible, and it's, exactly. yeah. it doesn't really matter. I mean, we want it to taste good, of course. But it doesn't really matter where it's coming from. At the, at the level of the building block, no yeah. one can tell, you know, an essential amino acid if it's an animal one or if it's a vegetable one. It's, they're pretty much the same. And for the purpose of, you know, building your own body, it is not relevant, right? They are the yeah. same. Yeah, nutritionally, it's the same. It might not be from the same. the same source, yeah. It is the same. So this is really, again, what we're doing is we're cultivating a high protein microbial organism. And it yeah. happens that it's a filamentous organism that has filaments that mimic muscle filament. Yeah. So that's, that's a bonus. And, and also one thing that's really interesting is the organism completely naturally has very high level of vitamin D, huh. high level of iron, high level of calcium, B12, wow. which you know is something that is a challenge for a lot of vegans to get. But again, yeah. it's not a plant. Right. Yeah. So you kind of have the best of, of both worlds. Both. And so it's a natural, completely natural process. We just it's just farming. We're growing this thing, right? But what's great is we we control this environment. So we don't have to put antibiotics. We don't have to put growth hormones. We don't have, you know, we can protect it in many other ways and keep it very safe. We just the new farming. We're just farmers. Yeah. We're just yeah. farmers. So actually, speaking of farmers and then the consumers, are you envisioning that these proteins will be available to individual consumers or are you going to plan to sell to 
companies that will then incorporate the protein into things that they are using. So what we plan on doing is we plan on starting with the brand yep. and selling the product to consumer. And we are also open once we've done that to partnering. And again, I mean, I'm getting back to impact. I think it's important that, you know, we don't need to make every single food application. So if someone wants to use our product on a sausage, on a pizza, that's totally fine. Yeah. How soon do you think it will come to market? Like where in the process are you right now? We're targeting to get to market in the next uh, 12 to 18 months. So we're, we're getting great. closer. Yeah, we just uh, hired our uh, chief marketing officer, Karuna Rawal, who would join us uh, from an ad agency where she had developed some of the biggest brands in the world. And we're very excited to bring this sort of talent to really build a strong consumer brand. And, and I think it's important because it is important to tell that story. It is important that people understand that this weird microbe thing is actually something they can eat and it can actually be good for them and for the planet. And when I say good, I don't mean good in a way that, yeah, it's good enough. You know, I'm okay. I'll eat it. It really tastes like crap, but no, it's actually good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We can actually make it taste really good. So enjoyable food. And it's not, it is not in the common classic food chain. It's not something that people have historically eaten. And I don't think that's a problem. And yeah. uh, I, I, I always say, uh, I always give this example of one of our, uh, one of the company that invested in us is actually Danone. And a hundred years yeah. ago when they started, people in France did not eat yogurt. It was such a weird food yeah. that you could only get it in pharmacies. Yeah. And, and even in our lifetime, things like sushi, I remember when I was younger, you know, when sushi started to be more mainstream, yeah. You would hear people saying, well, eating raw fish, that's really weird. See, it's everywhere. Yeah. Exactly. So I think, I think there is this misperception that people are, you know, very close-minded or don't want to get into new different food. I, I totally don't buy it. I think again and again, we've seen yeah. this entire category emerge. So let me be clear. Is it going to replace meat tomorrow morning? Probably not. But are these products going to become the equivalent of what soy or almond milk are to the milk business? Absolutely. Yeah. And, it, and if we're successful in doing this, and, and you know, I'm very encouraged to see the success of people like Beyond Meat, Impossible Food, who are, who are helping us. You know, we're, we're the little brothers in a way, right? <laughs> they're, they're, they're opening this market and demonstrating that there is a tremendous interest in the part of consumer for this, for this product. People, yeah. people are smart. You know, people know they want to be healthy. They want to live in an healthy planet and they want that to work. So I think we need to bring them the solution and we need, to, we need to be optimistic about this. Yes. Yeah, what's given me a lot of hope. So I've been vegetarian all my life. I became vegan exactly 12 years ago, actually, this week. Mm-hmm. And so thank you. Yeah. And in that time, I've just seen how much things have changed and how much more aware people are now that they cannot ignore the fact that things have to change for our food system and for the foods that we're all consuming on a daily basis in order to make that impact for the future. What what you're saying is, is so true. And what's really encouraging, I think, is to see how that message is resonating with younger generations. Yes. 
I am very impressed with teenagers nowadays. I honestly think these these guys are going to be the one of the greatest generation on the planet. And and these kids who are you know walking away from from high schools who are you know, blocking traffic in London who are demonstrating against global warming. There is this you know level of activity, but there is also a sort of calm confidence that I see in a lot of these kids. Like yes, we yes we're going to make this happen. And 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 when I see this younger generation, I think they look at these things as something that's much more part of the norm. A, a generation ago, being a vegan, a vegetarian would have been you just. You're just a weirdo, right? So I think seeing how fast these things are becoming normal is encouraging. And I, and I don't think also you have to be perfect, right? I, I want to yeah. be very clear on that. Yeah. You, you can be a, a vegan, you can be a vegetarian, you can be a flexitarian, just someone who wants yes. to reduce the amount of meat. All of that is great. You yeah. don't have to do it all or not do it. You know, we're not there to tell people what they should or shouldn't do. We want to offer choices. And I think that's really, if you bring these choices and these choices are compelling, then people will just make the change by themselves if they feel like it. Yeah, no, it's very true. I feel like even the messaging that you hear around us from organizations and groups that are working in this space is that try to replace at least one meal a week and see how that goes. Or replace one meal a day with something else or replace the protein in this dish with something else as an alternative. And I think that makes it a lot more accessible and a lot easier for a consumer because it can quickly get overwhelming if you tell them overnight you have to go completely vegan. And yeah. that puts and people it's not, off. It's not, it, it puts people off. Yeah. It also kind of puts you in the earlier than the, you know, I'm yes. lecturing you about your life, which you know, I, don't, I don't quite like. And I think none of us do. But also I think it's, it's missing potentially the bigger impact, right? The bigger impact exactly. is, not, uh, is not that you remain vegan or vegetarian. The bigger impact is that old Uncle Bob, who is having a burger for breakfast, a burger for, for lunch, or a burger for dinner, maybe cuts that a little bit, right? Yeah. And it would be probably good for his health and good for, and good for all of us. So I think that's what we should be aiming for. And so that's why, that's why a lot of people in the industry are trying to do these products that are you know, aiming at that population that is eating meat today. Yeah. And that's fine. I think that's really what we should be doing. I mean, Pat Brown, the CEO of, um, of Impossible Food, says it very well. His, his, his target is not vegan and vegetarian. Yeah. His target of meat eaters. And he says, maybe delicious, try mine, you know, and I, I think that's great. I think that's great. And we need, yes. we need to do that. I mean, of course, we're all going to be competitors, but there is a sense in this industry that we need to collectively make this thing happen. I mean, those things are yeah. important and consumer choices are important. We want to bring them the ability to choose and then they will decide whatever they want to choose. But our mission is to do that. Our mission is to all collectively as an industry to bring these choices to consumers. Yeah. And I think I heard someone say, I can't remember who or in what context, but they were talking about how there was such an explosion of companies that are working on alternative proteins. And they were saying how it's amazing that so many companies are doing it and we want even more companies to do it because that means as a collective, we will end up with more shelf space than 
conventional protein sources and having more options and being in front of people and being visible in that way will start getting the process going in terms of people thinking about alternatives. That's exactly right. I think there is, you know, we're really in the process right now of starting the wheel. Yes. And I think the, the wheel will keep rolling. And, yeah. and again, I mean, it's inspiring to see how the dairy world has changed. Um, exactly. And I, what I envisage for the future is exactly the same thing happening for, for this sort of protein, uh, from, from meat protein. I think yeah. we will see exactly the same thing. Look, I mean, consumers, as opposed to what some uh, regulator want us to believe, Consumers know very well that soy milk is not milk coming out of a, yeah. of a cow called soy, right? People yeah. know what they're, what they're doing. Yeah. People are making these choices. And as an industry, that's really what we want to do. We want to bring more of these choices. All of yeah. us. Yes, agreed. I, I wanted to go back to something that's probably a little technical, but I mm-hmm. wanted to ask in terms of the organism that you grow, MK7, is there anything specific that you need to feed it for it to produce the edible protein? Or I know, remember you saying that it was pretty flexible in what it can consume. So what do you really need to give it as an input in order for it to produce something that's edible? So we, we spent a few years developing the technology. And, and what's really interesting about that is we are able to use a variety of very simple products to grow it. So typically we can grow it on starch okay. or, or things like um, uh, glycerin, which is a byproduct from the vegetable oil production. Yeah. So when you make vegetable oil, you have, you know, we have oil on one side and glycerin is one of the products that you have on the side. And it's, a, you know, those, those things are completely food grade and, and already consumed in many, many products. And we, we developed a formula, if you will, a media using that and where we put everything that the organism needs to grow, right? So it's just the right amount of salts, of minerals, of, you know, we're kind of recreating a little bit of that environment and actually even improving on the natural environment. And then the organism is extraordinarily efficient at using that. So just to give you a kind of an idea of what that means, with one ton of starch, we can make about two tons of meat-like product. Oh, wow. Okay, so it's doubling the quantity. Because meat is 75% water, right? So we have yeah. about a 50% efficiency and then, uh, and meat is typically around 75% water. So what, when we make that meat, it, that, that's about what it is. So these, just again, put things in perspective with the amount of resources that you need to make one kilo, one, one pound of beef, right? Yeah. It's really a fraction of these resources. And it's, it's, yeah. It's efficient to the point that we're going to be putting our pilot plan here in Chicago. And, and what's, uh, what's even more exciting is that this old district in Chicago, which was the, it's called the stockyard, where, which yep. used to be really the main place for animal slaughtering. Yeah. And that's where our pilot plan is going to be. That's so great. So we're literally bringing back protein production in place that used to be the center of animal meat production in the U.S., in Chicago, in the old stockyard. And so one of our board members uh, the other day was saying, we're going to have flying cow angels around <laughs> our, our factory protecting us. So we'll, we'll, we'll take that. Yeah. Um, 
I remember many years ago reading The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, yes, which is completely based in the Chicago that, meatpacking industry. That's exactly where we're going to be. Yes. That which is, is amazing. But the fact that we can make this protein there yeah. with, you know, using a fraction of these resources, we, we're going to be yeah. literally saving thousands and thousands of acres of grazing land. Yeah. And, and of course, the equivalent of thousands and thousands of, of cows and, and chickens. So it's, yeah. it's exciting that we can, uh, that the technology enables us to do that. That's amazing. To get back to your question about how, how, many, how much resources we, we use, we can decrease the water by about 90%. Wow. We can decrease the, I mean, the overall amount of energy. We are actually in the process of doing some of this work. But it's, it's really infin, infinitesimal in terms of footprint compared to what we have with our current, current system. Yeah. And, and, and one thing that's really interesting also here, and I don't want to get too technical, but if you think about what is going to be the rare resource as we get into the 10 billion people, it is really protein. There's going yeah. to be enough carbohydrate for, for everybody. It's really protein that's going to be a challenge. Yeah. And what we do is we make protein. Yeah. So if you think about the classic soy burger, what you're doing is you're extracting the soy protein, turn it into a flour, then you have to transform that flour into a burger. You know? Yeah. Um, but you're... What we're doing is we're taking the leftover from that in a way, and that carbohydrate leftover, that's what we turn into protein. So we create the net yeah. protein. And if you think that this is yeah. the rare resource, what you want is more of the rare resource, then that's what we make. So that's what we are excited about. Just in the spirit of the fact that we're in the week of, you know, we're still celebrating the, the trip to the moon and the fact that astronauts landed there and, and all of that. What do you see as the most out of this world application for what you're coming up with? Do you see it on another lunar landing or a, maybe a Mars rover or well, where do look, you see it? There is a good chance we are actually going to be in space within a year or two. So I'm, you know, that's great. It's not a, it's not a done deal. No. It's only not, but we're, we you know, we're, you know, we're, we're working on this project for NASA and we'll be very excited to do that. No, and I was getting very excited when I was doing research on your company as well, because I started feeling hopeful that government agencies were actually investing in this kind of technology. So that gives me hope as well. Yes. And, you know, I think people like to paint a bad picture of government agencies. Yes. Uh, and that's totally unjustified. I think we've met phenomenal people and we've been supported by the National Science Foundation, by the USDA, by the EPA, by NASA. And people are really trying to find solutions. You know, we're very grateful that we were uh, supported by them in, our, in the early stages in our journey. I can very candidly say that we would not be there without the National Foundation, without the, National Foundation, without the yeah. EPA, without the USDA. But, you know, make no mistake, they really took us to the grinder in terms of science. They wanted to make sure that, you know, we had very solid science and they were not squandering taxpayers' money, which they, you know, and rightfully so. Uh, we also are quite excited to be, uh, to have actually an agreement with the National Park and we will be giving part of our money to, uh, when, when we make money in the future, so we'll be giving uh, back to the National Park. And I think that's, that's part great. of you know, maintaining nature and conserving nature is something that we feel very strong about. 
That's amazing. Thank you so much for that. That's very appreciated. I personally love our national parks. Yellowstone has been on my list. I haven't gotten there yet, but I will. Very well, soon. <laughs> we look forward to welcoming you in our lab uh, in Bozeman, Montana. That would be uh, amazing. Where, where we do a lot of the research. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Before we close, can you tell our listeners where they can get more information about the company or anything else you want them to know? As you did a little bit of research on us, you probably found that there is much. We were just busy doing work and we, we were not parading. <laughs> we are in the process of putting a new website together. There's going to be more information and uh, we're going to be doing a few more press releases and let people know about what we are up to. We are a venture-backed company. It's actually interesting. We have big strategic companies like Danone and ADM, who is one of the leading agriculture company. But these people really are thinking forward on what this needs to be tomorrow. Absolutely. And we also have a group that's led by Bill Gates, uh, which is called Breakthrough Energy Venture. Bill Gates is on a mission, and Breakthrough Energy Venture is on a mission to support technology that can have an impact on greenhouse gas emission and we were talking about hope earlier. I think it's, it made me very hopeful to see the portfolio of companies that they're putting together and supporting. There's a lot of smart people working on, this, on smart technologies there. And I, and I think we'll see the benefit of these in the, in the coming years. Thank you so much again for your time you. and for your insight and for all of the great information that you've provided. Great. Well, thank you so much. This, uh, this was a great conversation. I really enjoy and looking forward to uh, listening to all the next podcasts you're going to be producing. I listen to a lot of podcasts. So That's you, great. You're, my, you're my list now. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for your support. Thank you for tuning into this episode of After Animals. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or tell one friend about our show. The more people we have listening, the faster we can spread the word. Thank you. The After Animals podcast's mission is to activate a kinder, more compassionate world through innovation. After Animals is hosted by me, Yulara Nakagawa, and me, Sharanya Krishna Prasad, for, for the, the animals. animals.